Welcome to Pipeline, Profiles in Philosophy and Education. I'm your host, Winston C. Thompson. Pipeline is a monthly short-form interview program focused on contemporary scholars. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, please visit pipeline.fm. Pipeline is made possible by the generous support of the Education Department of the University of New Hampshire. This episode, we're joined by Ron Glass, University of California, Santa Cruz. Ron Glass, welcome to Pipeline. Thank you very much for inviting me, Winston. So, uh, given the format of our program, um, it'd be helpful if you could tell us how you began doing philosophical work on education. Uh, could you uh, just give us a little bit of uh, your background and your entry into this, uh, into this work? Well, I think I have uh, not the standard entry. So, <clears throat> I had the, the uh, privilege of, while still in high school, um, being exposed to a lot of neurology and neurosurgery and, and uh, thinking about uh, the relationship between the body and mind okay. and uh, at Indiana University at the medical school and also through my father. And then uh, as an undergraduate, I, my first year as an undergraduate, I took a, a year-long seminar with a psychiatrist at the Harvard Medical School on the relationship between body and mind and began thinking about uh, issues of ideology and how things like racism and sexism and militarism became embodied. Hmm. And through different kinds of learning processes and psychoanalytic processes and things like that, And at the same time that I was studying those things, I was very involved in um, the civil rights movement and then later the anti-war movement. Mm. And so I began thinking about movements as educational enterprises Mm. and uh, in particular movements as ways to intervene in the embodiment of ideologies. And so it was from that work uh, Then I was exposed when Paulo Freire came to Harvard. Mm. Um, I was exposed to his work and began thinking about uh, becoming involved sort of in schooling, actually. I hadn't thought about that before. And then I thought I would become a teacher, but I could never get hired as a teacher, it turned out. And so I continued to pursue these philosophic interests around... Uh, issues of ideology, issues of public learning processes, and um, how to challenge those dominant ideologies. Okay, so uh, some of our listeners may not be familiar with uh, uh, ideology as you're using it here. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about what you mean when you uh, invoke that concept, ideology? Uh, You mentioned uh, racism, sexism, militarism, etc. What do you mean by ideology? Well, ideologies, I mean by that, structures of thought and culture and institutions that reproduce domination and inequality. Okay, okay. So, so if I understand correctly, then it sounds as though the domination and inequality uh, uh, inherent sort of in the, these ideologies uh, are the, exactly the sort of thing that you were trying to push against, if, if, if you will. Uh, but earlier you mentioned the body, right? You, you talked about uh, uh, these sort of ideologies being embodied ideologies. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, could you please connect that for us? I mean, how do we get from ideology, as you've described it, to embodied ideology? And, and why is that important? 
Right. Well, some people think of ideologies as systems of ideas, and um, I think that's a misunderstanding of ideology, right? Ideologies like racism or sexism or classism are, are practices, and they're part of institutional arrangements. Yeah. And so through these practices, we learn to embody racism. We I learn see. to embody sexism. Mm. So I sometimes use the analogy in talking to people about riding elevators. Mm. So in our society, in this particular time, um, most people know how to ride elevators, and they know the rules for riding elevators, that you, how you stand in the elevator, sure. where you stand in the elevator, what kinds of things it's okay or not okay to say to someone who gets in the elevator if sure. you don't know them, all those things. So I, we ride racism and we ride sexism in the same way that we ride elevators. We are brought up into these practices because we live in a culture that is racist mm. and that is sexist and that is classist. Mm. And we don't have to be taught these ideologies except when we break the rules and then we're admonished, right? Then we're corrected, we're steered in the, in the right way. And all of this happens through the body. And, it, and we are sort of disciplined in our feelings and our emotions. Even our dreams are disciplined by these ideologies. And that's why to um, counteract them is a very deep and challenging process. Eric Fromm described Paulo Freire's work as a kind of historical, cultural, political psychoanalysis. Sure. And that's how I see my work, and that's how I've seen my work for a very long time. Yeah, so uh, I, I find that elevator example to be very uh, illustrative in that it, it sort of it suggests, uh, um, in some ways, uh, an education that's very much unlike the sort of education that most folks think about when they think about the word education, right? right. Most folks, I, I imagine, uh, think about someone very intentionally, very methodically, uh, uh, bringing about a particular set of ideas uh, uh, or supporting a set of ideas in a person's mind. Uh, but what you're suggesting is that rather than a particular moment in which we are educated into uh, an ideology, uh, the education happens sort of more insidiously. It happens over the course of a life. It's not, uh, uh, there's no sort of one uh, source, but sort of all sources are uh, influencing us, pressing upon our very bodies uh, to create uh, a context in which certain sorts of actions or uh, ideas are uh, likely. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Right. So the, in the same way that these ideologies, as I put it, they inhabit us more than we inhabit them, although we, we also inhabit them, but they really inhabit us. Um, the, the challenge to them also needs to be inhabited, right? So the, the solution to racism or the solution to sexism isn't some kind of legal action or isn't something that happens in a transaction or in a moment or even after a successful movement, mm. um, it comes through engaging in a way of life, right? Entering a kind of struggle to understand how those ideologies inhabit us because the struggle has to be internal as well as external, right? There are these external 
social, economic, political forces and structures, the institutions that need to be struggled against and challenged. Mm. But they manifest themselves, these ideologies, in our own selves, right? Mm. So I say to people um, that even though I've been consciously, actively, say, fighting against racism for almost 55 years now, Mm. I'm still a racist. Right. Uh, even though I've been actively, consciously fighting against sexism not quite as long, sure. I became conscious of sexism after I became conscious of racism, um, I'm still a sexist. Sure. And yeah. so we have to acknowledge the ways in which we have to perform kind of internal, deep reflections, not only about our attitudes and ideas, but about our practices. Mm. You know, where do we live? What are the foods we eat? Who Mm. do we hang out with? What's the music we listen to? What are the clothes we wear? All of these things are part of ideological structures. Yeah, it sounds as though one uh, the sorts of uh, confessions that you're uh, that you're suggesting that uh, you are able to make, and that uh, perhaps I imagine uh, we'd want other folks to make as well, sound like very uh, difficult confessions for many people to make. And it sounds as though uh, what you're suggesting, again, uh, this awareness of uh, our actions and the ways that our actions sort of embody or uh, create uh, an embodied uh, ideology, uh, seems like a very uh, tall order, right? Uh, I'm yeah. sure that many people, uh, upon hearing these ideas, push back and say, uh, you know, uh, you know, we're asking for too much. Surely uh, education, or in this case, a sort of self-education or self or an awareness of one's self as being educated, uh, uh, surely it shouldn't require all of this, right? Uh, well, sadly, it does require all of that. And a lot of people, you're right, resist that these notions. They don't want to think about the fact that they are responsible for all these things that they have been thrown into, unawares. They didn't choose to be inhabited by these ideologies, and they don't consciously embody them, right? So they go, well, I'm not a racist, I'm not a sexist, I don't actively discriminate. Sure. Um, And yet, everyone embodies these ideologies because this is a culture into which we have been thrown, right? Mm -hmm. We don't really have a choice. And so, you know, one way or another, uh, we are, we either continue to embody them or not. And it can't really be just up to us because there's so much self-deception. People are so um, enamored of wanting to be good and only good. Um, They can't quite imagine themselves as owning up to the ways in which we're not good. And... So often I think what we really need, we need friends, we need colleagues who will uh, tell us the truth about ourselves. Mm. Um, I one time gave a talk and jokingly said uh, I spent uh, the morning with my teenage son, African-American young man, um, and who at that particular moment in his life was aware of every single one of my flaws, and there are many, many, um, and he could enumerate them with great detail and point out to me all of my inconsistencies, all of my blemishes, the, the something wrong with my clothing. Sure. And um, at this conference, at the end of a long discussion of you know, how do we uh, prepare ourselves for these kinds of daily struggles, I said, well, 
I think if we all had uh, to accompany us a loving teenager um, who sees clearly all of our flaws hmm. and is willing to point them out to us. That's kind of what we need, right? We, sure. And uh, so I'm lucky I had three kids. Um, and so I had, I had many years of uh, instruction from my children about all of my own contradictions and inconsistencies and things like that. So I encourage everyone to find a teenager to criticize them. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like a uh, uh, it sounds like a productive way forward. Right? <laughs> now, I, I, you know, so what I'm hearing is, uh, in some ways, a sort of an educational project that requires an engagement with others, right? I mean, so Absolutely. it's not just that. It's not just that uh, you know we embody ideology and then we go off by ourselves and try to work on it. Uh, what I hear you to be suggesting is that in order for the work to really uh, uh, be done and be done well um, uh, as this sort of continual process, we've got to be with others who are uh, holding us accountable and right. uh, holding up a mirror in some ways uh, to the contradictions, as you say. Right, exactly yeah. that. So yeah. the only way to do it is by embodying it, right? Trying to say, I'm going to make this part of my life, is yeah. to understand these ideologies within me, to understand these ideologies in the spaces within which I work and play, yeah. um, and make that part of my life project, and, and ally myself with others who have the same intention. Mm -hmm. And together, with, if we have compassion for one another, we can help each other become more responsible mm -hmm. about it. Now, of course, you've mentioned that you've been engaged uh, in this work for quite some time, but to your mind, given that history, given that past, what's on the horizon? What do we have to look forward to? What would you say to uh, some, perhaps, graduate students who are looking to uh, connect to the traditions that you've mentioned? I mean, you mentioned uh, being uh, uh, captivated early on by the work of Paulo Freire and finding yourself in that tradition, but uh, what sorts of questions ought people be asking if they're uh, looking to join the conversation that you've uh, been a part of for so long? Well, I think they have to assess who they are and where they are, um, because I don't. There's no one path. Yeah. There, every path overlaps with this path, mm. right? You can be, you know, for a number of years, <clears throat> I was a janitor and a house painter, and I went from being a janitor and a house painter to going to Stanford, right? And the, um, the all of those spaces are spaces within which you can learn and, and engage with these issues. So there is no one path, mm -hmm. and I think people have to sort of assess their own, who they are and where they are. What are the opportunities and barriers within which they're in their environment? What are their interests? You can approach these issues through different disciplines, whether it's psychology or sociology or anthropology or philosophy sure. or history. So if you're a graduate student, there are many disciplinary lenses and traditions that themselves need to be criticized and corrected around these very issues, because they too embody elements of racism and sexism and so on. Um, and I think for people who may be particularly interested in, in schooling, so I differentiate education and schooling, um, but those who are interested in schooling, there's an enormous amount of work to do because schooling is cruel mm. um, to millions and millions of children who are 
humiliated every single day, many times throughout the day, and told they don't know, they can't do, mm. they never will, that they're just nobodies. And so I think there, there are many opportunities to intervene in, in manifold ways within schooling, whether it's mm. the curriculum, the disciplinary policies, the kinds of opportunities that kids are given within them. Um, so I, I think, you know, the sad part about these ideologies is they permeate every single part of our lives, from the most intimate to the most public, mm. from the most sacred to the most profane. And that's the sad part. The good part is that means that no matter who you are, no matter where you're situated, no matter what your interests are, there's work to be done. There's work you can do to open up these ways of thinking, these ways of acting in the spaces that you're in. Mm. You don't need to go anywhere and do anything special. You don't need to be somebody special. You don't need to follow one particular line. You just need to say, I'm going to take these issues on in myself, in the spaces where I am. So it sounds to my ears as though uh, the question is not whether there are going to be uh, uh, issues to engage. The question is whether or not we're going to be courageous enough to engage these issues that are directly in front of us. Exactly. So Maxine Green uh, had this notion of wide awakeness, mm, right? Sure. And that some, one of the first tasks we had was to just wake up yeah. and really understand who we are, where we are, what's going on. And so a lot of my own thinking is aimed at, and my practice is aimed at waking myself up sure. and waking up those who are around me. Makes me kind of a pain in the butt to be around sometimes, I guess. But um, but it's always good to be the gadfly. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, Ron Glass, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank well, you. thank you very much for the invitation. For more information and to review previous episodes, please visit www.pipeline.fm. A very special thanks to Moby for use of his song Summer as our theme.